Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Last time I talked, <clears throat> I was sharing with you what I thought was a talk on the four Brahma Viharas, uh, which ended up to be a talk on the first Brahma Vihara of loving kindness. And um, I wanted to continue with the other three tonight. Again, it gets me back in touch with my own recent practice, uh, which is still somewhat with me. can always be warmed up a bit more. And I wanted to do it in the context of the theme of mindfulness of wholesome states. <coughs> you know, when, when you do this <coughs> practice, as you, I think, can all attest, you see a lot of stuff that you perhaps would prefer not to see initially. You see greed, you see hatred, you see delusion, you see judgment, you see fear, you see all of those things that make you, in first response, say, oi, or oh no, oh there it is. And it takes some courage to keep on going through that. It's one of the beautiful things about a, an old student's retreat, that you all have enough faith or courage to, to know that there's something more than just looking at the suffering. But sometimes it can be so much of an emphasis on opening up to suffering and feeling our fears that we can forget that this is not just about being with suffering, but it's about cultivating joy and a happy and wise heart. The actual definition of right effort in the classical texts has four components to it. Two of them have to do with unwholesome states. One, guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Good luck, you might be saying. Huh? Well, what does that mean? Just briefly, one thing that, that is a helpful guard is to um, restrain or minimize sensory input of things that will stir up greed, hatred, and delusion. So coming to a retreat is a very helpful protection and guard, guarding against those states before they arise. And being careful in the environments that we choose to hang out with. The second right effort is diminishing or abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen. So there you are finding yourself in the middle of anger or fear or sadness or whatever and to somehow skillfully work with them so that you are not so swept away and believe them and in your mindfulness, kind attention, they begin to dissolve. The other two right efforts have to do with wholesome states. One is developing or increasing wholesome states that have arisen. So if you're feeling a thought of kindness or generosity or an impulse of, of compassionate action, to continue that, uh, that motion, that movement of the heart, and strengthen that. And then the fourth being to develop or have arise wholesome states that have not yet arisen. So that can mean to consciously 
try to develop or focus or have the intention to develop qualities that perhaps seem remote to you or foreign or that aren't quite here just now, but through intention and skillful action can allow them to arise. So these are the four right efforts, and I'd like to particularly focus on um, the third and the fourth tonight as we go through the rest of the Brahma-viharas. Because it's a very um, useful thing to understand that what we focus on is very important. We can keep on focusing on our fear or our story, our sadness, our whatever, and it can be useful up to a point, but when it becomes our story and that's what our life's work is to somehow work through our fear, well, it doesn't give much room for, for much else. And so to consciously be present for those moments that wholesomeness comes and see that it's not just a fluke, you know, that there's something really beautiful that wants to emerge um, we can strengthen that. If we don't bring awareness, then we keep on replaying old tapes. Here's an exercise that I, I do with a beginning class that I find very interesting just to see how the mind works. Just close your eyes for a moment and I'll say a word and notice the response trouble trouble notice how it feels inside any images <coughs> okay, take a couple of breaths you can erase the blackboard I won't leave you here and I'll say another word Kindness. Kindness. Notice how it feels inside. Any images. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. Do you notice any difference between those two? Now those are just two words plucked out of this mind, plopped into that one, and there's a whole response. Just imagine if we keep on replaying those the same tapes of fear or trouble or anger over and over again, what it's doing to our system. I had an interesting interview uh, with, uh, with somebody who was talking about um, tension. This person kept on feeling tension and uh, in their sitting. And it got to the point where they were worried if there would be tension. So they'd get down to the, the sitting and say, oh, I wonder if there's going to be tension now. And it's with a bit of worry somewhere in the recesses of the mind. And sure enough, every time they looked for it, there was tension. So. We just uh, played around with, uh, with things for a few moments, and I said, well, let's see if you can find any joy in there. Just see, look for joy. And in a moment, oh yeah, there's joy. And then a few moments later, let's see if there's any calm in there. Oh, yeah, there's calm too. Let's see if there's any caring. Oh yeah, there's that too. It's just what you look for often that you will find. Now, you can't make it a project to fix things by just denying what's there. But it's important to see what we bring to the process or what we focus on can develop things. So there's the, the whole notion of wise attention, where sometimes it's very important to look directly at our difficulties or our demons, and sometimes it's less so. 
Sometimes we get fatigued or lost or confused, and it's better to turn the attention to something else. <clears throat> and the same way with our practice, we can see either what's going well, going right, have confidence or faith in something that we experience, or we can see what's missing after we've experienced it. Oh well, I had this particular thing, and now it's gone. And in that moment, here comes attachment again, which makes this moment not enough. It's possible instead to focus on the fact, ah, yes, uh, there's that capacity for clarity or for kindness or whatever, and now moving into something else. So this is a, a list, which I got permission to read. I had one, I asked one yogi to write down a list of all the things that they saw missing in their practice or all the attachments to practice. Uh, because they weren't quite seeing how that was getting in the way of this moment be o being okay as it was. So this person uh, wrote a, a kind of David Letterman's uh, top ten list of attachments <laughs> around practice and retreats. One, attachment to calm. Getting into deep samadhi states and staying there for long periods of time with an exclamation mark. Two, attachment to clarity. The more I practice, the more I'll see things clearly. Three, attachment to progress. More work equals greater calm and clarity. Attachment to wisdom. Having at least just a few juicy insights per retreat. <laughs> Five, getting it right, noting every nuance and detail, being continuous. Six, catharsis, having at least one good cry per retreat. <laughs> We're really getting somewhere now. Seven, looking good. At least if my mind's a mess, I can still look like a good yogi. <laughs> Eight, being equanimous and magnanimous so that when none of the above happen, I don't lose it. It's okay, nothing to get hung about. And then they said, I could only get to eight. You know. But I don't think they were attached by that point to the other two. And it's very illuminating to see, oh, this is the problem. Oh, this is what I was creating. This is what's missing instead of taking delight when there's clarity, when there's calm, and seeing that it's impermanent like everything else. <clears throat> what this uh, right effort in enhancing the wholesome states that have arisen and developing those that haven't is what it can be called nourishing healthy seeds in us. And the more we nourish them and and tend to them, the greater the possibility of their arising in the future. This is a, a beautiful passage by Thich Nhat Hanh on nourishing healthy seeds. And this is also follows that little discussion on karma uh, from this morning. Consciousness exists on two levels, as seeds and as manifestations of these seeds. Suppose we have a seed of anger in us. When conditions are favorable, that seed may manifest as a zone of energy called anger. It is burning and it makes us suffer a lot. It's very difficult for us to be joyful at this moment that the seed of anger manifests. Every time a seed has an occasion to manifest itself, it produces new seeds of the same kind. If we're angry for five minutes, new seeds of anger are produced and deposited in the soil of our unconscious mind during those five minutes. That is why we have to be careful in selecting the kind of life we lead and the emotions we express. 
When I smile, the seeds of smiling and joy have come up. As long as they manifest, new seeds of smiling and joy are planted. There are many kinds of seeds in us, both good and unskillful. Every time we practice mindfulness, we plant healthy seeds and strengthen the the healthy seeds already in us. If we plant wholesome, healing, refreshing seeds, they will take care of the negative seeds even without our asking them. To succeed, we need to cultivate a good reserve of refreshing seeds. It's a beautiful way to see karma unfolding. So that shows that the karma is both immediate and in the future. It feels good right now as well as in the future. Now, taking delight in our wholesomeness or in the wholesomeness that comes through us is not conceit. You know, it could be easily questioned, well, what does that mean? You know, oh, I'm such a loving person, and then you just reify the sense of self. But that's not what this is about. It's very different from reifying a sense of self. It's taking delight in the goodness that has arisen in us without taking blame or responsibility or ownership of it, but actually feeling the goodness itself as it arises. This is from the Buddha, from the middle-length discourses. He says, Thinking... I am practicing generosity. One one takes delight, is gladdened in the heart, and has a deeper inspiration for the Dharma. So it's a very skillful thing to take delight if it can be done without that grasping or identification, just feeling how good it feels. And the best way to take delight is to really be present for it not a half-hearted moving on to the next thing, but to let it register, let your body feel it. Because when you do, it feels so good, that thought, or if it's an impulse to do or say something, it feels so good that it can give energy to the manifestation of it in word and action. And the way karma works is that there is a subtle karmic consequence of thoughts and as they become repeated again and again their karma, the karmic result of those patterns of thoughts are clearly felt. But when the thought is translated into words the karmic consequence is that much deeper. You know if you've been annoyed at somebody and then you say something to them in the fit of your annoyance, and it's not so skillful, the words can't be taken back, and sometimes there can be regret. Oh, I wish I would have said that in a different way, or in a different time. Or if the, if the thought gives rise to action, the karma consequence is that much <coughs> deeper. The same way with our wholesome thoughts. When there is a wholesome thought or impulse, when it gives rise to actually expressing it, when you have an impulse to say to, to somebody, I really have fun being with you, for instance, if it feels appropriate in, in the context, or uh, it was really great sharing this, whatever there's that connection, that bond that becomes deeper. And if it gives rise to action, a kind or a generous or compassionate impulse gives rise to action, then the karmic seeds are much more powerful and plant more likelihood of that response in the future. So bearing that in mind, Let's go through these um, three other Brahma-viharas.
After loving kindness or metta comes compassion. And Gil spoke um, a, a bit about compassion last night in a beautiful way. He talked about it, and as it says in the classical texts, the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. There's a certain resonance that we feel, a kinship, a commonality of experience. And it's a, it is amazing to me this capacity that we have to care. It's one of the great mysteries of life that we are somehow given this quality of a caring heart. It feels so good. <clears throat> it's one of the things I remember from philosophy that uh, I think it was Kierkegaard saying, you know, how is it possible that human beings would risk their own life to save another's? How is that possible? It's such a strong impulse inside of us. Now, this compassion is very different from pity, as was mentioned yesterday, from that contraction. It's also different, as Gil was mentioning yesterday, from a, a horrified sympathy that is more concerned with how bad it feels for ourselves. And compassion doesn't necessarily mean fixing things. Often it's very different when you try to make things better and take away somebody's suffering because it's too painful for you to bear. Sometimes Compassion simply means showing that you care, being present and seeing, yes, life is hard sometimes. And as we touch it in ourselves, we've touched our own pain, we're able to, to be there for others without needing to fix because we're not afraid to feel it. came across this short excerpt. A famous author and lecturer once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. The purpose of the contest was to find the most caring child. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Nothing. I just helped him cry. You don't have to fix things. Just being there with your openness, with your strength, with your presence. This is healing. This is a, a compassionate heart expressing itself. And it can be developed. It's developed over time. We can see how much more compassionate we can be when we see the great holy people. Oh yes, I wish I could be like Mother Teresa, you know, and then compare ourselves. Well, I came across um, the Dalai Lama talking about compassion and talking from a personal perspective. He says, Whenever I speak about the importance of compassion and love, people ask me, what is the method for developing them? This is not easy. I don't think there is any particular package or method that enables you to develop these qualities instantaneously. You cannot just press a button and wait for them to appear. I know that many people expect things like this from a Dalai Lama, but really all I have to offer is my own experience. And then he says, I come from the northeastern part of Tibet. Usually people from that area are quite short-tempered. 
So if I get angry, I can use this as an excuse. When I was 15 or 20, I was quite short-tempered. But through Buddhist training and through difficult experiences, I have been able to improve my mental stability. Difficult experiences are very good training for the mind. They help us develop a kind of inner determination. Today, compared with 20 or 30 years ago, my mental stability is much better. <laughs> of course, irritation still arises sometimes, but it disappears quickly, and heated agitation is almost never there. As a result, I experience more happiness and joy. When the worst news comes, I feel uncomfortable for a few minutes, but afterward, I don't feel much disturbance. Through training, we can change. That's heartening, isn't it? And in a moment, we can change as well. And perhaps you know the story of Ashoka, who was uh, this great ruler a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And in his earlier reign, earlier years of his reign, he was called Ashoka the Wicked, because he would go and uh, he was a great conqueror, and just like Alexander the Great, just uh, go through a territory and uh, subdue and conquer and, uh, and kill everyone in the path that wasn't going to join his side. And this went on for many a bloody battle, until finally one particularly horrible battle where he saw afterwards all, all the carnage, all the bodies, all the blood that had been shed in the name of his desire to acquire, he was really mortified. He was really uh, just so uh, unhappy. And across the battlefield came a Buddhist monk in robes walking very calmly and peacefully. And he said, how is it that I, a great conqueror, with so much am unhappy, and this simple monk with so little is clearly happier than I am, knows what happiness is about? And he asked him, and he was told. He was given the teachings, and in that moment, he changed forever and became one of the, the greatest propagators of Buddhism, the greatest in, uh, in the history since the time of the Buddha. And from that time forward was called Ashoka the Righteous. In just an instant we can change. <coughs> Usually it doesn't happen as dramatically as that for us. But if we keep on nourishing the wholesome seeds as they arise, little by little, they're planted. In my own retreat, I'll just share with you, um, uh, for me, what it was like to change from loving-kindness from metta to compassion. After doing loving-kindness for about four and a half weeks, um, and then from that loving space, all of a sudden going into focusing on suffering and opening my heart to it. It was a jolt, actually. It was quite it was quite a bumpy first few moments. Because there you are just splashing love on others around and all of a sudden, oh, we're focusing on suffering now. And actually when I tried to use the phrase, I mentioned this in the, um, in the loving kindness the other day, when I tried to use the classical phrase, may you be free of suffering, there was in my mind, in the recesses of my mind, some aversion implied in that. May you be free of suffering. May, may you get rid of it somehow, and I'll feel better. And I was sitting there with, with a pain in, my, uh, in my, uh, my back, actually, and as I was trying to wish somebody else, may you be free of suffering from a compassionate place, there was this pain that I was also thinking, 
unconsciously, yeah, may you be free of suffering, get out of here. And so I was getting a little caught and then uh, was given an alternative phrase, which I shared a few days ago, I care about your suffering. And that just clicked for me in a beautiful way. I didn't have to fix anything. I could actually open up to it. And actually, it became a very wonderful, I loved that period of practice where I was with the compassion, just one after another, going through the various people from starting out with somebody who's in suffering to then myself and benefactor and through the whole cast of characters. So like to just uh, take us through a brief uh, guided compassion practice right now. And you can use whatever phrase resonates with you. May you be free of suffering, or I care about your suffering, or whatever else. And the way it's done is you start off in this one with someone who is in some suffering. Not yourself, not necessarily yourself, or not necessarily your benefactor, but somebody who is going through a hard time. And this is simply acknowledging and feeling that caring inside. So picture them. You can see them going through that hard time and simply wish for them well or express your caring. I care about your suffering. You can just repeat that and let yourself feel how it feels to care. See if you can let them have their own experience and you just provide a caring to it. Now, I'd like you to put yourself in the seat of honor. And for all the difficulties you've gone through these last few days or in your life, bring that same quality of caring to yourself. Like a mother cares for a child or a good friend cares for another good friend. You can either say, I care about my suffering, or from the outside, say, I care about your suffering. <coughs> you don't need to fix. Just bring care to it. Now I'd like you to bring someone else to the seat of honor. And it might be somebody who you don't know so well on this retreat, for instance. Or if somebody else feels like the appropriate person, but you might think of somebody nearby you or in the room or in the retreat. Perhaps you sense they've been going through a hard time. I care about your suffering.
Now, as we go through this, let your experience be whatever it is. So if you're not feeling compassionate, that's okay too. So you have compassion for that. But if you did feel just a glimmer of it, take delight in your capacity to care. It's real. It's wonderful. So, after compassion comes the next Brahma-vihara, mudita, sympathetic joy, or joy in the joy of others. This is a very interesting one. Sometimes it's the most elusive one. You you can feel kindness towards people or beings, or when you're feeling their suffering, you can just really feel compassion. But sometimes joy at other people's success is not as spontaneously accessible. I came across this quote by um, Montaigne, a French philosopher, who says, There is something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortune of our friends. (laughs) Now, there had to be a kernel of truth in that statement for others to get it. What is that about? You know that feeling? Oh, too bad. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) What is that about? Well, as I, I look in my own response, it seems that it's a false understanding that there's a certain quota of happiness in the world. And that if somebody else has it, it means there's less for me. Or if I have it, then it's less for somebody else. Or there's just somehow a a jealousy or an envy of why isn't it happening to me? When is it going to be my turn? Maybe when they get over their happiness, I'll get some. And this is a real misunderstanding. It doesn't work that way with anger. Have you noticed? You're in a, in a room minding your own business and somebody comes in who's really angry. doesn't mean that there's less anger for you. Generally, the energy rubs off. And energy begets energy. It's the same way with joy. It can be the same way with joy. And one way to reflect on this this quality of sympathetic joy is that there's a little bit more joy in the world. Isn't that wonderful? Ah, more joy, more happiness in the world. Great. The world doesn't need more greed, hatred, and delusion. It needs a little bit more kindness and happiness. And it's a kind of free ride, you know. Oh, a bit more joy you can plug into. The near enemy of mudita is exhilaration, in the classical uh, teachings. It looks like um, joy, but when you become intoxicated with the joy, and you just are delighting in that joy and how good it feels, you can be swept away with it and forget about the other person, but be so intoxicated with your own joy. And people can do really weird things when they're in that state. The, the classical example is, you know, after a World Series championship or a, a, an NBA champion, basketball championship, there's riots that happen in, in the city. It's really been really sad in the last last number of years for especially for us sports fans. Because you, know. <laughs> you, you want to exalt, you want to delight, you want to just feel the goodness and share it with with others. And when it stops being safe because there's there's such an intoxication, it's uh, it's painful. 
the benefits of sympathetic joy, just in case it doesn't seem good enough to dive into without a, <laughs> a payoff. There is a number of good benefits when you feel the joy of others. One, it develops a friendliness, so you feel a connection with others. Two, it develops generosity. Your heart opens in response to others. It also develops compassion, because again, out of that connection comes a caring when things aren't going well. It develops tolerance. It also develops concentration, as do all of these, each of these four. These are all concentration practices, and you can become very focused and one-pointed just on that feeling of joy, where it's not exhilaration or intoxication, but but a, a very strong um, samadhi state. <coughs> it is an antidote to jealousy, which is the, the far enemy. Jealousy, greed, boredom, apathy. It's good. It's a good thing to cultivate. Uh, when uh, you do the practice, you think of somebody who is having a lot of success in their life, who you like. I thought of uh, my niece, who was just really flowering in the prime of uh, young adulthood and uh, just doing so well. And I was, especially after compassion, which I enjoyed thoroughly after a while, but then finally going to Mudita, it was wow, so, what a blessing that we can feel happy just at somebody else's happiness. And I was, I was in that space for quite, quite some time over the course of uh, the period I was doing this. But then after a while, like I said the other night, you can get habituated to anything. And I, uh, I was more saying it mechanically after, after some time, and I felt... Gee, I wonder if I could if I could call it up again. And there was this one sitting. And this is just some something that was instructive or illuminating about the whole process. Uh, there was this one sitting where I tried calling up my niece, and my benefactor, and good friends and other people in uh, who I was sitting with. It was just like in the wee hours of of the morning. It was somebody who I really appreciated and. I just couldn't really feel it at that point. And I thought, well, okay, not much I can do about it. And then I thought, is there anyone who makes me happy when I think about them? And then it came to me, Steve Young. <laughs> who, for those who are ignorant, uh, is the quarterback of the... 49ers. <laughs> and I had, I had gone through this a couple of years ago on a retreat where every time I thought about, about him, I just got happy. I thought, well, okay, come on, Steve. And I imagined him right after his, his uh, Super Bowl victory and MVP victory, and, and he was just exulting, del delirious around the stadium, going into the stands and slapping people's hands and having this goofy grin on his face. And as I brought that image up to my mind, it was like the faucet just got opened, just got turned on, and it came gushing. I was just <laughs> tears of joy and crying. <laughs> and it was the interesting thing about it and why I share it is that once the faucet opened again, then I felt it for all those other people. And it's a, just a, I share it with you just as a, an interesting phenomenon that when it seems that, it, that we just don't have that feeling, that capacity for that feeling, all it takes is opening it up for a moment. And it's not so much the, the subject or the object of that feeling that gets things flowing, but the feeling comes from inside, and then you kind of get reminded of that energy, and then you could place it on, on other people. So, 
um, we can go through a, a short um, sympathetic joy, mudita practice. And again, the image that I found very helpful, like with the loving kindness, is this sense of splashing the person with your good wishes. You know, just like you, you've got a, uh, a can of, uh, of sunshine paint, you know, just and you're just splashing them. And let whatever your experience be, don't, don't force it. But think of somebody who's going through a, a really wonderful period in their life, who's genuinely happy. And it can be a child. Sometimes that's an easier access. Or somebody who's successful right now. And see their delight in front of you. An image becomes very helpful. See their smile. Feel their happiness in their heart. And then the phrases for the, the mudita are, may your happiness continue and may your happiness grow. May your happiness continue and may it grow. Just say that a few times. See how it feels to wish that for somebody. as a little bit more joy comes into the world. Now, put yourself in that seat as well. And even if you are not always happy, think of some moments of happiness either in the last few days or in your life, or some blessings in your life. That comfort you and make you feel happy. And then wish that for yourself. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. Or in the first person, may my happiness continue and may it grow. <coughs> so all the good seeds get nourished and plant more and more seeds of joy. See what it's like to wish that for yourself. And now, let somebody else sit in that seat. Again, maybe somebody on this retreat. Maybe somebody, somebody you don't know even so well. Or whoever it feels right. and wish that for them. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. And notice how it feels to wish that for another. Take delight 
in that capacity to feel joy at others' happiness. Just increasing a wholesome state that has arisen by your presence. on to the fourth <coughs> divine abode which is equanimity upeka equanimity is a balance of mind and in some ways it it balances out the other three the others have a, a, a kind of touching of the heart in a way that wishes well or wishes for, um, for the end of suffering or cares or wishes for joy. And this is one that tempers any kind of, of well-wishing with a reality check, with a sense of balance that sees that you can only do so much and in the end things are the way they are. Where's the... Uh, there's a way... Uh, yes, this is from Jnanapanika Tara about how equanimity works with the others the others, love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance, the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one. But in the end, equanimity is where the deepest peace comes from. Just seeing things as they really are. And it is rooted in understanding. Understanding of impermanence, how things change. And so nothing can be held on to. You can wish somebody all the love and all the joy in the world, and sooner or later it will change. You can wish that for yourself, and that's not possible to maintain. It's an understanding of the ungraspability of experience. And there's an understanding of the selfless nature of experience. Things are unfolding in their own natural law, which is really coming back to the understanding of karma. There's cause and effect. There's actions and consequences. And the way that the equanimity practice is done, again, going through the cast of characters, actually starting with the neutral person, and then going through self, benefactor, friend, difficult one, all beings, is saying the phrases, you are heir to your karma. That's the first phrase. And there's variations, but that's the basic idea. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions, not on my wishes for you. Or as one teacher put, not solely upon my wishes for you. Because there is an effect that our wishes have on others. But that kind of really levels the field after you've been spending weeks wishing well. Just, oh, you are the heir of your karma. Things are the way they are. It was a very powerful practice for me in my retreat. 
Um, and one particular sitting that I'll share with you before we can share this together, um, where I used my son, Adam, who's now 10, who's the love of my life, apple of my eye, whatever you want to call it. I love him. And he's a great guy. And I just, I used each uh, of the four Brahma Viharas in one sitting just to get into a focused, concentrated state. And so I had him in the seat. And first I wished him love. May you be safe from harm. May you be healthy and strong. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And it was wonderful. And I really felt that, that love for him. And then I did some compassion with him. I care about your suffering. And I saw him when he was down about not having a particular friend like him or doing uh, striking out in a baseball game or some, some different, different times that, uh, that he, he took to heart and was, was pained. And I just felt his pain his great disappointments in his life and other places. And then I did the sympathetic joy. May, I, may your happiness continue and may it grow. And I saw him win this big chess trophy and come back from camp all confident and just uh, full of self, self-confidence and these various other happinesses. And it was fantastic. And then came the equanimity. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions, not on my wishes for you. And what happened was um, I started having these images of different circumstances happening that uh, would be frightening from accidents, terrible accidents, illness, catastrophes, all sorts of things, including death. And there he was in the seat as I was just reminding myself that karma is karma. And it was powerful within that concentrated state. Ah, yes, seeing things happening over many lifetimes that we are just on this earth playing our game and it comes and it goes. And then what happened after that sitting, after that, that piece of the sitting, was I had somebody else take a seat. It was first my wife and then my friends, and including Jack and Sylvia was in there too. And just one after another, feeling feeling my love for them first, just getting in touch. Oh, yeah, you're really a neat person. I really love you. And then giving them just a little bit of a tip. You are heir to your karma. (laughs) 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 Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And it was like uh, I was reminding myself each time, and I included myself. And it was really wonderful just taking all the, the, the pressure out of making life perfect and just releasing that and seeing what's here. The Dalai Lama says, if you had to choose between karma, understanding of karma and emptiness, go for the karma. Because you can have an understanding of emptiness and feel disconnected from others or maybe do some unwholesome things that lead to negative karma that uh, will deter you in your full awakening. But if you have an understanding of karma, you're going in the right direction because actions bear consequences. So I'd like us to go through to end, we're coming close to the end, a short equanimity practice. You might start with somebody who is uh, neutral, 
somebody here on the retreat, perhaps, or somebody you don't have much feeling one way or another. And just see and say to them as they sit in front of you, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. If you'd like, you can simply say the first line, you are heir to your karma, if you get the sense of what the words mean. And feel that with a caring but balanced heart. Now, put yourself in that seat. You are heir to your karma, or I am heir to my karma. My happiness depends on my actions, not on my wishes. And then finally, put somebody you love in front of you. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness, unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes. Feel the, ba- the power of the balance of mind, that caring, the non-controlling heart. And take delight in that capacity to have equanimity. So, with each of these practices, again, we are developing wholesome states. This is one of the, two of the great right efforts, wholesome states that have not yet arisen and wholesome states that have arisen. And we can feel great about that ability. And in so doing, create wonderful um, fruits of that intention. And so I end with the Buddha. The perfume of sandalwood, a rose bay, or a jasmine, cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. So we can sit one last time very briefly, knowing that in the practice of mindfulness, these Brahma-viharas are cultivated just in bringing presence and caring and openness to this moment.
thank you for your attention. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on December 6, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.